You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. History has taught me some strange arithmetic. Using swords, prison bars, and pissed the grips. English is the art of bombing towns while assuring that you really only bless the ground. Science is the honorable. Ben Kiebrick here, and I've been listening to The Coup, this great punk hip-hop band from Oakland. We're just going to let this play for a second. Today we're talking about the protests that have been sustained over several months in Ferguson, Missouri, after the brutal killing of Mike Brown. And within that topic, the use of media, citizen journalism, the representations and uses of anger, and the representations of people of color over traditional and social media, as well as the national conversation sparked by this and related events. But I want to get into this song and start with this song because I was struck the other day by the chorus, teacher, my hands up, please don't make me a victim. An authority figure, a police officer, or a teacher, turning someone with their hands up, a universally peaceful signal into a victim. Someone that's calling for peace, someone that's looking to speak. And the next part of the chorus, teachers, stand up. You need to tell us how to flip this system. There's a call for responsibility for teachers, for us in education to teach students how to replace an unjust society with a just one. This is a podcast about the practice pedagogy and the public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. And in talking about Ferguson today, I want to be thinking about the connection of all three, not just about the way that rhetoric is circulating around Ferguson, but how our own public texts are circulating, either to create and sustain, or to challenge and resist the sort of system that creates Darren Wilson's. And I want to be thinking about the practice of rhetoric in our daily lives, the way that we speak to one another and who we speak to. But I also don't want to forget about our role as teachers in the classroom and with students. That is, having students not just analyze important issues like what is happening in Ferguson, but to teach them and help with them to flip what is unjust. And that is the responsibility of all of us in every situation to build a society in which Darren Wilson does not brutally kill Mike Brown in a residential street. Today we have a lot of help getting into media analysis, naming important contexts and histories, and reporting from two citizen journalists in their own right. Today we bring Tessa Brown, Sherry Williams, and Nikita Slade. We're going to start here with Carrie Ann bringing us into the first segment of the show. As rhetoric and composition scholars, being attuned to the circulation of texts and ideas allows us to consider the concealment of state violence against citizens even in our own country. This was highlighted by the events that occurred around Ferguson, immediately following Michael Brown's death. It also brings up questions about media representations and the kind of coverage that these events received. One of our fellow composition and cultural rhetoric PhD students here at Syracuse wrote about such topics in a series of articles published in The American Reader. Hello everyone, this is Carrie Ann Soto, sharing with you an interview I did with second year doctoral student Tessa Brown, whose research interests include the intersections of popular culture, race, 
and hip-hop. In Dead or in Jail, Ferguson and the Bounty on Black Life, Tessa Brown writes, What we see, in fact, is the buoying of our economy and the enrichment of the 1% at the expense of human lives, lives like Michael Brown's. This is the family portrait of late-stage American capitalism. Our weapons, deployed all over the world, have no targets left but ourselves. She notes, then, the economic context through which we can understand the events on Ferguson, especially in relation to violence against people of color. So I asked her to expand upon the economic perspective that she developed in writing the piece. One of the things that struck me immediately about the events surrounding the murder of Michael Brown and one of the things that really struck the country was the militarization of the police force in Ferguson, which is just a small, close suburb of St. Louis. Um, unfortunately, I think police brutality was not the surprising part of the story. Unfortunately, as a country, we're pretty used to that, uh, police violence against people of color and young, young black men especially. Um, but what was really surprising was the tanks and the armored vehicles and the machine guns and the SWAT gear that the police showed up in to, to battle just young people that were in the street that were not being violent. And so part of the story that really interested me from the beginning was just the money trail. How did these vehicles end up in Ferguson? just a random suburb in America, who was paying for it, who's benefiting off of that, which to me obviously is you know, the defense industry. And just thinking about how, as America has pulled out of foreign engagements, there have been economic interests, like the defense industry, that are negatively impacted on that. And so thinking about how those industries have pushed Congress to create new markets for their products, namely our own cities. And then in that first piece, I also was thinking about the economics of the American inner city, which Ferguson is not even the inner city. It's a, it's a suburb. But the economics of communities of color, and that was really, my interest in that was supported by uh, an op-ed written in the St. Louis American, which is an African-American newspaper that just talked about the effects of deindustrialization on this community, on Michael Brown's community, on his high school, on the possibilities for social mobility in that community. And in Ferguson, I really saw two economic stories colliding. One was the story of deindustrialization, which is also the economic story of hip hop, which is what I study. And the other one was the economic story of our foreign policy, our defense industry, and how economics have almost gotten in the way of our efforts to make less war. And so the war has just come home because of the economics of the situation. There is a connection between transnational contexts and the local US context, specifically in her second article, Gaza, Ferguson, and the Perils of White Guilt where Tessa juxtaposes Gaza and Ferguson, starting with the story of Hetty Epstein, a Holocaust survivor who was protesting in Ferguson while wearing a t-shirt that read, Stay Human. I therefore asked Tessa about the connections between her identity as a Jewish woman and a hip-hop scholar, 
and how these affect her reading of Ferguson. I think my work on hip hop, it really demands and has cultivated in me a sense of empathy for people whose upbringing was different than mine. I grew up as a pretty in a, a pretty privileged white community in Chicago, but engaging with hip hop and kind of committing myself to a social justice teaching, you know, is an empathetic project. And I'm Jewish also, and that's always been very important to me. And not just for me, but for a lot of young Jews, there's a crisis right now, a moral crisis over Israel, which is an occupying power. It has settlements in the West Bank. It controls the borders and the livelihoods of the people that live in Gaza. And for a lot of young Jews, that's not commensurate with the, the Judaism that we want to practice and that we grew up devoted to. And in my work as a hip hop scholar, my focus is always on the oppressed and their forms of resistance and their efforts to reclaim their dignity and their humanity. So it's hard for me to keep those two parts of my politics separate from each other. That has definitely informed my thinking on Israel. And there's a huge hip hop scene in Israel because hip hop is part of global political resistance in the late 20th and 20, early 21st centuries. So in the second piece, I just really th thought about how these two moments were connected. Um, and they weren't discreet even on the world stage and on the media stage. Um, there was this surreal moment when the police in Ferguson started using tear gas on the protesters there. And people in Gaza who were currently suffering under Israel's Operation Protective Edge this summer in August, started tweeting at people in Ferguson about how best to avoid or handle the symptoms of tear gas. Um, and I keep thinking, even as we're talking, of some of the speeches that Martin Luther King gave late in his career um, against the Vietnam War and his increasing conviction that America's racist domestic policy and racist foreign policy were very deeply connected. And, you know, for many people, that's thought of as the radical position that sort of the government couldn't really tolerate from him anymore. All throughout her series of articles, there is a constant presence and conscious citation of social media texts that influence how she understands the events around Ferguson and around Gaza. Besides the role that social media plays in her own understanding of the events, I specifically asked about what she thinks of social media's role in the distribution of representations of these events. Well, social media was really central to my understanding of this event from the beginning, just because that's how I heard of it. I found it on Twitter and just started following the story and started following it as it picked up speed on Twitter. Within a few days of Michael Brown's murder, it seemed like my whole Twitter feed was talking about it, and yet there was no... Did, there wasn't a lot of mainstream media coverage at the beginning. Um, and it also seemed really limited to Twitter. Um, and there were some articles that I read later about how Ferguson really gestures towards the importance of net neutrality because on sites like Facebook where algorithms filter out the so-called relevance or irrelevance of certain posts, um, Ferguson was not arising in people's Facebook feeds, whereas on Twitter, where there was no sorting algorithm, 
the story was able to gain traction because it just was there. If you were online when someone was tweeting about it, you would see it no matter how many people had liked it or shared it or whatever else. So social media was really important in terms of getting this story out and in terms of my seeing it, it was important in terms of my writing these stories because my editor at the American Reader saw my tweeting about it and asked me to write these pieces. And I think, you know, I was in California this summer. I never went to Ferguson. I wonder now, you know, are these just quote unquote think pieces or was I reporting on something? And I think if I was reporting on anything, it was, I was reporting on the media. Part of what I was doing was covering the media and interrogating media representations, the images of Ferguson, the way that people tweeted about Ferguson. Just in the excerpt I read before about the economics and this question of whether, you know, people of color have always been exploited for economic gain in America. That was a commentary that I saw in a lot of tweets that I link to in my piece. Um, you know, activists and writers like Mickey Kendall out of Chicago pointing out that this is not new. The economics of Ferguson are not new for America and kind of rejecting this script that would come up of horror at how could this happen in America. And there were people on social media pushing back and saying, no, 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 this is always what happens in America. Don't feign surprise. This is what this is the economy that we live in. Similar to the writers and activists that Tessa refers to in her pieces, it's safe to say that in addition to being a critical media consumer, in writing these pieces, Brown has also become a producer of media that aims to trouble our understandings of recent events. So I asked how she would connect that to the work that we do in our scholarship on rhetoric and composition more explicitly. We're just kind of ending on a, no on a discursive note and just noticing how familiar some of these scripts are that are still being circulated in our media. You know, my last piece kind of ended with like, can't we find more creative ways to report these stories? Um, the story of Michael Brown is so important, but we get trapped, I think, in this narrow narrative that we've been telling for a really long time. There are so many other pieces to the puzzle that need exploring. So I sort of ended my work and I feel this way still with a lot more questions than answers and just this feeling that there's so much more excavation that needs to be done. And I think hopefully that's part of what we can do in our scholarship and our rhetoric study. This has been Keybrick again, introducing a discussion I had with Sherry Williams. Sherry is a doctoral student in mass communication at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. She's written for The Source, Ebony and Essence magazines, appeared as a commentator on CNN, and worked for the Associated Press. Among other topics, she studies representations of people of color in the media. I talked with Sherry about her engagement with the news coming out of Ferguson, especially through the citizen journalism happening over social media. I also talked to her about her experiences on the ground in Ferguson as she traveled with a group from Syracuse, New York as part of the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride. I want to talk to you about Michael Brown, the unarmed teenager on his way to college in a few weeks who was shot and killed by Officer Darren Wilson on August 9th. And it had me thinking in preparing for the interview today about how I was home in rural Illinois mid-August with my white middle-class family and they were all talking about Ferguson, talking about how militarized the police were, how um, terrible it was that another 
unarmed black youth was shot. And I thought that that was really kind of interesting that, that they initiated this, uh, you know, like my grandpa, who actually lives outside of St. Louis mm-hmm. wh- and was home for a moment, was talking about it. And so I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about how, how you saw this story spread from August 9th to, to then later, a week later or something, most of the country knowing about Ferguson and about what happened, and maybe also talking about how it was that you first saw that story, where you first saw that story. Okay. I first saw the story, um, believe it or not, on Instagram, because there's a local reporter, a television reporter um, in St. Louis, Brittany Noble, who I know her, but I don't know her. We're both members of the National Association of Black Journalists. And a lot of us just follow each other and we follow, you know, the work that one another um, does. And um, I just, I follow her on Instagram and I just started to see all these video posts and also photo posts of, you know, uh, just people gathering, congregating a lot together, um, people protesting, um, like at the apartment complex where he was killed at first. I saw some clips of his mother crying and just like this gut-wrenching soul cry and just a lot of anger coming from the neighborhood and the apartment complex. So I was already getting to be familiar with the story before it started to blow up in mainstream media, right? And also we have a listserv and on our listserv, people were saying like, hey, you know, there's this young guy was killed by police in St. Louis. You know, one of our colleagues is covering this story and here are the links to like her social media accounts and you guys should check them out. I mean, but I had already seen them anyway. So that, so he was killed on a Saturday and I think the first time I saw it on the news was maybe Sunday night, but there really wasn't much to it, right? So we know like when news comes on, like the most important stories are the stories that are right at the top of the hour, right at seven, right at 11, whatever the hour is. So when I did finally see the story, I think it was Saturday night on ABC News, comes on at like 6.30. I didn't really see that story until like maybe 6.37, 6.40, something like that. So it wasn't like really high on the news agenda, but I didn't start to see the story really spread in national media probably like I want to say seven to ten days later and I think that is because the protests continued right it wasn't just some the protests weren't just something that happened for one or two days they were consistent they were long they were strong right and you know so the the people on the ground were really strong in their convictions to fight for justice for this young man who was killed by the police but then you saw like the police become long and strong with their aggression against the citizens, right? So you have citizens walking down the streets with their hands up. And there's this one iconic photo that I'll never forget. There's a young black man who's standing up in the middle of the street with his hands up. And there are like a dozen police officers in riot gear with their guns pointing at him. And I think those kinds of images were the kinds of images that really got the entire country to kind of stand up and start to listen more. Because at the same time, you know, we were seeing pictures of, you know, what was going on in Gaza, in the Middle East, you know, in other areas in the world. But then right here in the heartland in the United States, we're seeing what pretty much looks like a war zone. And I think that is what kind of clicked for people. And mm-hmm. where, like when the, the whole conversation of of the de- uh, militarization of the police really started to bubble up and mm-hmm. um, get on the national agenda. That, that iconic picture, I don't know if that was taken by a citizen journalist or someone from the mainstream media, but, I, but I, we do know that there's tons and tons of citizen journalism happening. 
sharing images, sharing videos, sharing up-to-date messages. And, and I wanted to know, why is that citizen journalism important in contrast to what the traditional media might provide? I feel like citizen journalists, they don't have to wait for some editors and some producers to decide what is important and what people should know, right? They're able to bypass the gatekeepers and just pick up mobile technology and log on to those social media accounts and just tell the audience directly what they think is important, right? So they don't have to deal with the gatekeepers. They don't have to deal with the agenda setters. They can do it on their own. And I think that's particularly important. Social media and mobile technology has particularly been important for people of color, for working class people, for immigrants, for people who, um, LGBT people, all different people who belong to groups that have been traditionally marginalized in the media because they don't have to not only wait for the media to tell their stories, but they also don't have to wait to have their stories be misconstrued too, right? And have their stories misinterpreted, right? Because we know that a lot of these groups too, they're not covered in the media a lot. And then when they are, they're heaped with a lot of stereotypes, right? They're piled with a lot of stereotypes and the complete story isn't always told. So that's why I think social media is really, really important in this case because you're hearing directly from the community, directly from the people who are affected by these issues without having to wait for CNN, NBC, ABC or any other uh, mainstream news organization to show up, right? And also, um, when those news organizations have shown up, because we've seen the authorities in Ferguson be be very heavy-handed, you know, with everything that they're doing, right? So we saw that there were um, journalists from the Washington Post and the Huffington Post arrested, right? So when the mainstream media is being crushed by authorities, you have like thousands, hundreds of citizens who they can't they can't silence all of those voices, and they're ri- they've been rising up to the top and informing people about what's going on all over the country. I've seen on social media not just on the ground reporting, but also responding to mainstream media. There was the campaign about essentially about what what would it look like if I was killed? If they right? gunned me down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a lot of things. So that that's one of them, if they gunned me down. That whole campaign that said that, um, so w- when Mike Brown um, was first killed and the media started to show pictures of him, there was one picture that they showed where he appeared, he had on like a basketball jersey and he appeared to be, you know, like kind of just throwing up the peace sign, like deuces two fingers. But there were people in media who, in, in the media audience, interpreted that as he was throwing up a gang sign, right? And then so people were like on social media were challenging that. Why is it that when a young black man holds up two fingers, it's seen as a gang sign, but when someone else does it, it's seen as a peace sign. And that's been like the universal hand signal for peace for decades. So why is it when it comes to him, we don't see it that way? And there were also there was also the question that why was this kind of casual photo of him in a jersey throwing up what, you know, you in your newsroom could even maybe... Uh, interpret as a gang sign and not a picture of him in his cap and gown, right? So there were questions of respectability, like respectability politics kind of came into play too. So that's where that if they gun me down um, whole hashtag came up, right? Even though I am a youngish black woman pursuing a PhD, you know, has has a career as a journalist, would you show a picture of me with a drink in my hand, you know, kicking it with my friends, or would you show a more respectable picture of me maybe teaching in a classroom, right? So people on social media were challenging just these stereotypical and these like stereotypical normative um, ideas of black criminality pretty much, right? 
And what I've seen, especially people from Ferguson contest a lot, is really just the facts, right? The facts of what's going on there. Because you'll see like on CNN or um, some of the mainstream news, like there were riots and the riots were violent. But then on in the same breath, you would see people on the ground saying that this actually wasn't a riot. This was a peaceful protest. Police started tear gassing people and, you know, aggressively, you know, interacting with people and then people defended themselves. Right. So I think social media has been important because it's given people an opportunity to refute not only stereotypes that have appeared in the media about this case and also to refute some of the facts of what has happened on the ground in terms of clashes between protesters and also the authorities. I'm curious about if, if you could share about what's happening there with on the ground face-to-face -face organizations and how that is pushing for you know we know that real social change and structural change is going to have to happen from that not just from people tweeting but also right. from that work and so uh, what are you seeing on the ground there? And then how is it maybe connected with what's happening online? Okay. Well, for one thing, I think what, um, what the whole social media space has done is that it has connected people, right? So there have been people in different parts of the people in California, people in Texas, um, people here in New York, in upstate New York, in the new, just in, in the state in general, in the city who have really gotten a chance to not only learn about the issues that are going on there, but also to start to be connected with some of the activists on the ground, right? But then also to strategize, right? So some of that um, strategy I've seen happen online, but then it has translated on the ground because like the whole Black Lives Matters Freedom Ride, right? That was supposed, the, the whole intention of it was to have people from all over the country come and not only just demonstrate with their bodies that not only Mike does Mike Brown, um, not only does his life matter, but other black lives matter too, right? But it wasn't just, it wasn't just a weekend of just protesting period. What the, there was pretty much a special call for people with skills to come, people with media skills to actually document people's stories and write down and, and somehow capture through photo, video, through text, what are people experiencing here? What has been going on here, right? So so that was the Black Lives Matters Freedom Ride was, in my opinion, it was um, started, I don't want to say it started out as, but a lot of people learned about it through social media, but it translated into real life and on the ground activism, right? And so what Black Lives Matters is continuing to do is to do like demonstrations, town hall meetings, even educational forums across the country. So I think a lot of people's entry point to the whole Mike Brown case might have been through social media, but those who have been really, really touched by this have then translated that online um, social media knowledge into real life on the street activism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not only in uh, Missouri, but also in, as you're saying, New York City or... Yeah, across the country. Right. And I wonder if you want to talk a little more about that. What What is there to do locally? Because we know that this isn't just about Ferguson Absolutely. Missouri. Absolutely. Where do we go from here as a country with, we're, it seems like we're having a national conversation yeah. around this finally, but but where do we go from here and, and how do we make sure it doesn't just die out like any other 
media story? And... Well, locally, I think there's a lot that people can do, right? So we know that here in Syracuse, there have been a couple of instances of police brutality just over the summer, right? And um, the city is now having a series of conversations with people. What I saw was here in Syracuse, like right after this happened, and not just in Syracuse, a lot of municipalities were starting to wonder, like, could that happen here? And what are we doing here to prevent something like this from happening? You know, how effective they will be, I'm not sure. But I know that one of the ways that people can let the authorities know how they're feeling about issues of police brutality and, and um, anti-Black violence is to attend these meetings, right? And to start doing things on their own. I went to a rally back in August that was started by two 10th graders who, you know, I just saw them say on Facebook, you know, we're sick of this. You know, two 16-year-old girls said, we're having a youth rally downtown at the federal building because we're sick of this kind of stuff happening. And there were, a, you know, a pretty sizable amount of people who came, who showed up. So, I mean, sometimes people think that, you know, rallies and protests don't really make a difference, but I think we've seen through history that they have, right? And that might be like an entry point for someone to just kind of maybe start to get more information and start to become more active, but it can translate into something else. I'm speaking to Nikita Slade, a socialist activist and writer living in Syracuse, New York. She's an organizer with the Howie Hawkins, Brian Jones Green Party campaign. Nikita traveled to Ferguson, Missouri in early September with the Black Lives Matters Freedom Rides. We talk about Ferguson beyond the moment, the function of anger to sustain a movement, and where she thinks the movement is headed. Our conversations begin when Nikita first hears about the tragic death of Mike Brown and the events that followed. I found out about the killing of Mike Brown and what was happening in Ferguson. On social media, I saw a whole bunch of people posting, again, another unarmed young black person shot down in the streets. So I remember I kept following the news. I was just so disgusted by it because it was because Mike Brown happened and then there had been Azell Ford and then John Crawford. There was just a number of uh, things that that had happened um, earlier in the summer. What's the difference between reading about the events and then actually being on the grounds with people? I really didn't know what to expect. We were walking down preparing for the march and so we were walking down West Florissant and then you saw we saw like boarded up signs, boarded up buildings. You know, some some of them were saying, you know, thank you, Ferguson appreciates your support, and those kinds of things. It was like you know, it's a big, big main street, and well, we started marching into this neighborhood, and I was like, why on earth are we marching in a neighborhood? I was like, you know, this is a big street. You know, there's more visibility, and then so we were marching in the neighborhood, and the street kept getting more narrow, and it was like homes. You know, there's apartments, and I was like, why are we here? Like, this doesn't make sense. You know, it was about 500, you know, 600 people marching down this small, narrow residential street. And then when we got to the edge of the street, there were some faith leaders, and, you know, they spoke, and they were like, you know, get out of the middle of the street, get on the sidewalk, get on the sidewalk, you know, to let, because Mike Brown's family was there, you know, his mom and the rest of his family were there, and they were like, you know, let the family you know, let the family have the street. And then once everyone moved to the side of the streets, I realized that we were in the actual place where Mike Brown was murdered. And 
the image that that stayed with me that has stayed with me since the protest is how like it was he was killed in his community it was such a small narrow street and there was apartments that were like right off the edge uh, of the street the fact that Darren Wilson felt comfortable shooting shots you know shooting those shots in such a narrow space it shows that he had he had absolutely no regard for anybody in that community right and I and I feel like I'm you know I'm tearing up you know, just thinking about that, it reminds us of why the clarion call, the chant of the whole, you know, what has come out of Ferguson has been like Black Lives Matter. Such reckless abandon, the way that Darren Wilson, like, you know, was shooting, the way he shot Mike Brown, the way he shot such a small community. Like, those are the things that society does that reminds us that there's no kind of humanity. Black life is so devalued in this country that Darren Wilson, not only would he do that, but he's, you know, he's faced no sort of no legal, you know, repercussions because of that. You've mentioned so many names. This is not right. the first incident. What's different about this moment that's creating a movement, very different from what we've seen in terms of other cases? Something I think that, I think that because it's, again, because it's happened with such frequency, I think that the anger has really propelled people to realize that, like, this isn't going away. And I think that because it happened, like, back to back, you know, in the summer, and then, you know, what was that last summer with Trayvon Martin? Mm-hmm. I think people are realizing, like, it's not just the fact that you know we're you know we're killed mercilessly, but I think that it's particularly when you talk about the, when black people and black communities are targeted, you know, by the state, you know, in the in terms of the police, there's absolutely no justice. And so I think that you know we're realizing, like, you know, the state, you know, the police force, they're like they're extremely organized, right? And so we have to be organized too. And so I think that the the two things that I think are really, really important is that, you know, people were, people are and were angry and we have, you know, we have every right to be. And then what I think people are doing with that anger is really, really, really important. Again, making sure that this is a long-term sort of sustained, you know, kind of movement that that's not just happening at Ferguson, but, you know, building the, you know, the roots of something that can happen you know, on a national wide scale. Maybe talk a little bit about how anger is framed. What's different about this moment in terms of maybe the deployment of anger into turning this into a movement. I like again when the first, when the case, you know, first broke, there's all this talk about, you know, looting. I mean, it's it's not even just like, you know, with um you know, Mike Brown and Ferguson. Anytime black people or people of color or any oppressed person for that matter expresses some kind of um, you know, rage or anger about, you know, the way that they're systematically, you know, oppressed, um, then people are like, oh, well, why don't you just calm down? You know, that closes off conversation. And that, like, it completely dismisses, again, the way that, you know, again, the, the views are very legitimate and, and very natural, and I think, human ways to respond, you know, to being, you know, oppressed and repressed. And so I think that, you know, I think that how we have to frame um, anger uh, is that it's you know it's legitimate right and I think that like if ever if everyone uh, hasn't read it then there's a wonderful piece by Audre Lorde um, called the uses of anger and I think that you know she speaks really really eloquently speaking specifically how black women's raging against racism and the fem- feminist movement one of the arguments is that it closes down conversation and that kind of thing I, I don't think that that can be the starting point right I think first and foremost we always have to say anger is justified and you're you know you're definitely entitled um, to feel it you know, so I think that a lot of a lot of people that are involved are definitely inspired, but I also think that I, I mean a lot of us are just absolutely enraged 
And I think that that has to be um, accounted for. And I think that that we're justified in our rage. We have every we know we have every right to be enraged about what's happening because it's. I mean, it's about Mike Brown. It's about Trayvon Martin. It's about Renisha McBride. You know, it's about all these like individual instances that have been happening, you know, for the last couple of years. But it's also about you know four hundred years of living under white supremacy. Like I feel like you know. People of color, black people have every right to be pissed off when we're killed like animals in the street. And so, like, even thinking about, um, here about what's happening at SU, uh, you know, here in Syracuse, if someone would have told me a few years ago that there would have been all these different rallies in the course of, you know, a few weeks, I probably would have laughed them out of the room. But, I, the, you know, the sort of, you know, rage, you know, the anger and the movements that, that are coming up, you know, nationally are really having, you know, an effect on, you know, like, lo- you know, local struggles and what, you know, what students and you know, all different kinds of people are thinking about. Like, even um, here in SU, when there was the racist uh, soccer player, Hannah Strong made those, you know, vile, racist, and homophobic, you know, remarks in addition to, you know, the fact that there's programs for black students or students of color or scholarships that were being cut. I think that, like, you know, the Mike Brown, the John Crawfords, the Azelle Fords, you know, I think that that was on students' minds. And I think that, you know, because it's happening so frequently and it happens so much, people are like, we have to do something. I think that's what makes this moment uh, a little bit different, you know, than previous moments because we realize, like, it's not going to stop. Like, these aren't just flukes. These aren't just accidents. You know, these aren't just deviations from an otherwise, you know, decent society. Like, you know, the whole society is bankrupt. It's corrupt. You know, it's racist. It's sexist. It's homophobic and ableist. And so I think people are like, okay, actually, like, this... Because this is such an entrenched, deep issue, then it's going to have to be, like, an entrenched, long-term kind of movement to, you know, to fight those kinds of things. Yeah, you've made these connections, right, from the incident to, like, issues of education. Are there broader connections beyond this in in terms of the the police violence, too? And I guess how are these getting articulated? Is this something that's getting articulated within this particular movement that maybe that you saw and then... And who's doing that articulation? I mean, mean, that's that's a really... um, That's a really fantastic question. Um, When I went... Um, on the, you know, the Freedom Ride, I was really struck by how intersectionality was like front and center. Like people, like I remember before we went, they sent out, you know, some, you know, some guidelines um, about, you know, what was happening and kinds of things about what to expect. And like, I think it was like on the first page and it was like, this is a, this is a, you know, a woman affirming space. This is a queer friendly space. And so I think that those kinds of, kinds of intersectional politics are really being injected and projected within the movement. And I think that that's really, really, really important. You know, people are talking about C.C. McDonald. You know, people are talking about, again, like Renisha McBride. So I think that one of the important things that I think is happening is that, you know, so oftentimes, you know, because it, you know, it is, you know, a lot of times, you know, the cases that get the most attention are, you know, cisgender, heteros, you know, presumably heterosexual black men. But like, even, even while, you know, the, what was happening in Ferguson was like unfurling, there was a case of the Oklahoma police officer that was found of like sexually um, assaulting eight eight women and uh, while he was on duty as a police officer and all of the like eight women were black. I think that what's happening so on the one front on the one hand we're seeing police brutality is not just something that happens to um, you know again cisgender heterosexual um, black men. So I think that we're expanding the conversation in that way to think about again who's affected, uh, who's on the receiving end of police brutality. But also I think that uh, another thing that is important is seeing who's been showing up 
to you know to varying degrees you know there's been like a labor response you know and i think that that's you know really really important right connecting you know labor movements and unionism with like social justice movements that are happening in the community i think it's also important to say that mike brown he was killed and murdered in a, in a particular context in a particular set of conditions right so how are we to make sense of the fact that it was a predominantly black you know city but with majority white you know political representation Right. And so, I mean, those are the kinds of things, you know, that we're talking about, you know, as a working class community. And it's so and I, it's so interesting. I keep going back to it. But when everyone was talking about looting, everyone was like, why are they, you know, tearing down their own community? It was like, do you think black people own the quick trip, you know, that was burned down? Do you think, you know, black people owned, you know, those businesses and, you know, that kind of thing? And I think that, you know, the, again, that's, you know, with the right kinds of analysis, that's pushing us to think about, you know, capitalism, like who owns what, you know, in our society. And so, you know, who gets the resources? And it's like the, you know, something that, you know, people have been specifically raising in Chicago is that, you know, people talk about, you know, crime, but like crime doesn't happen in a vacuum. And the same thing in Syracuse is like when when cities are disinvested from when we slash budgets for public services, it's like, you know, people, you know, are you know, options are extremely limited in our society. When you don't have jobs, you know, that don't have a livable wage, it's like, you know, you know, it leaves communities um, in disarray. What's happening is when you think about it in this broader context, it's like, you know, black people and poor people and other people of color were not pathological, but our communities, you know, are basically, it's basically like planned obsolescence. Like, you know, our communities are basically like set up, you know, to fail. They're not invested in it. And so I think that that's kind of thinking about it in that kind of broader way, right? So it's on the one hand, you know, again, we're not just like shot down, you know, by the police, you know, so, you know, those kinds of instant deaths, but like the kind of slow deaths and where in which our communities, you know, are not, and it's not, it's certainly not our fault, but it's like the political officials and economic elites, you know, again, that, you know, just ravage or leave, you know, black communities in, you know, disrepair. So I think that, so I think that, that those are the kinds of ways, you know, that we're, we can think about this and connecting it. You bring up political leaders. What were you seeing in terms of who were potentially <coughs> leaders of this movement? I mean, this is, this the question of leadership that's been coming out of Ferguson, I think that is really, really important. Uh, when I was there, so after the march, there was uh, there's some local. It was local. It was mostly women and young people. They put on a barbecue and they invited us uh, to come to the bar- barbecue. And um, I mean, I'm I'm just you know I'm 25, but and, and sometimes I feel old. But I was really really struck by how how young people are playing such a really important and vital role um, in Ferguson. I remember there was a woman. I wish I remembered her name, but she was talking about how there's there's a group, it's a collective called Lost Voices. Um, folks should definitely look them up and check them out. But she was talking about how that like, they stayed at um, this church, making sure that people, you know, were getting supplies, getting food, you know, getting water, just ba- basically being able to live and sustain themselves. She said they they like camped out for like you know a week and a half, you know, straight. You know, making sure, again, that people in their community were, take, you know, being taken care of. And I think that, you know, the folks that we were with made a really concerted effort to highlight the way that young people are being, um, you know, just, again, playing such a crucial role in what's happening. So, again, it was like a barbecue and they were just, uh, it was such great energy. The kids that I remember, you know, they had, you know, locks and they were sagging 
And I think, like, I mean, that's the exact kind of person. Like, these are the exact kinds of kids that are targeted in these ki- killings and in society in general. Uh, but, like, there aren't, like, mainstream media or, like, these sort of bankrupt, you know, talking heads aren't talking about the way that they're fighting for justice, you know, in their community. So there's, like, you know, so there's all the ways in which, you know, we, you know, people try to pathologize the sagging pants or certain kinds of, like, black hairstyles and that kind of thing. I was like, but the very kids, you know, that people in society are trying to demonize are the very, you know, kids that are actually leading um, the struggle and what's happening um, in Ferguson. And I think that um, I just saw an article on um, the other day. It was like, you know, women, like women taking the lead in Ferguson. So I, I think that those are really, really important to point out that women and young people have really um, been taking a role, a key role in what's happening in Ferguson. A lot of the young people in uh Ferguson are like, we don't want the kind of old school, top down kinds of leadership. You know, we're looking for like bottom up, you know, collective, you know, leadership. And it's not, and it's a leadership that's not necessarily going to come from like sort of the more traditional spaces in which civil rights happen. So it's not coming from the church. I think there's new people who are getting a voice who have been traditionally left out of those narratives. But it's also, I think, again, people pushing back against, again, like the Al Sharptons and uh, was it Jesse Jackson? I remember a, a few months ago when it first happened. There are people booing Jesse Jackson. So I think that there's just a really, like, you know, uh, just a deep-seated and rightfully, you know, discussed with the way, you know, a lot of these, you know, again, old-school, you know, civil rights leaders who are now millionaires, who are, you know, coming to wag their finger, you know, at these, you know, young people. This past weekend was a weekend of a lot of activity in Ferguson. So obviously the movement is strong. I imagine you've been reading. What do you think are the roles of leaders like Cornel West, mm-hmm. you know, sort of being sort of front and center in some of these stories? To what end in relation to the movement? Is there still potential for leadership that has been involved in these struggles to contextualize some of what has been going on? So. Uh, there's a, there's a way in which I think that the question of leadership, the sort of break in leadership has been framed as a generational gap, but I also think that we have to think of it in terms of a political gap because it's not just that the fact that you know all the folks from the 60s and 70s that were involved in the civil rights movement are now, you know, again talking heads or mouthpieces of the Democratic Party and that kind of thing. So I, that that's not always the case. And so here's a one of the things that um, that was really that really stood out to me when we had a debriefing moment was different folks got up and talked about you know just basically said whatever was on their heart and there was this older gentleman and he stood up and he said and it was he just said it so eloquently he was like he's like I just want to welcome you all to the struggle this is the time for you to be proud basically take your seat in this long tradition in the in this long you know black uh, freedom tradition and he was like the same kinds of fears that you're having you know we had them you know the struggles the questions he was like you know we've had very many of them and he was like so I would just like to say welcome you all um, to the struggle you brought up um, Cornell West and that's kind of a, um, like you know he's an interesting figure Cornell West made a good point he's like you know we have to uh, us we as in the older uh, folks that he was talking about have to apologize for not, you know, doing the due diligence of basically, you know, carrying on, like, real, like, progressive and or radical work. And so, you know, he was alluding to the fact, you know, that, you know, there are some people who have been basically bought off. But, again, going back to the point that it's a political difference, there's always been radical and revolutionary elements um, within, um, in, in previous generations. So I think that it's important to tease out 
the the what often gets discussed as a generational difference, but I think that it's really revealing the um the the political uh, differences in um, within and talking about um, leadership. Yeah, and thinking about how it was actually systematic how this radical leadership was either disbanded or destroyed and politically, like right in terms of things like Clinton Pro. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Specifically, very particular definitely. ideological mm-hmm. um, leaders that had a certain kind of ideology. So that reframing of that, not as a generational gap, I'm thinking in terms of the importance of having that historical connection, mm-hmm. you know, and even that guidance yeah. uh, from particular leaders. At this point, where the where the movement's at, um, where the conversation's at, where do you see it? Where do you hope to see it? I think there's a political opening that that's happening um, within the movement that I think that is really really important. Again, like it's pushing back against a lot of you know the old school ideas we about this kind of like top down masculinist. Um, charismatic leadership and thinking about, you know, more bottom, you know, collective, you know, leadership with young people and women and the queer people um, taking the lead. And, you know, people aren't just mobilizing in Ferguson, but they're definitely like organizing. And I think that that's, that's I think, where a number of different struggles and movements that are happening in the country um, need to go, right? And so I think that that's a, really an important lesson um, that, we're, that we've learned and are continuing to learn. Thank you so much to Tessa Brown, Sherry Williams, and Nikita Slade for joining the show. And a special thanks to Yanir Rodriguez for her help in editing and interviewing for this episode. We're going to leave you with a poem, an excerpt of Citizen by Claudia Rankine. And you are not the guy and still you fit the description because there is only one guy who is always the guy fitting the description. Yes, officer rolled around on my tongue, which grew out of the bell that could never ring because its emergency was a tolling I would have to swallow. In a landscape drawn from an ocean bed, you can't drive yourself sane. So angry you are crying, you can't drive yourself sane. Put your hands where they can be seen, put your hands in the air, put your hands up. And you are not the guy, and still you fit the description because there is only one guy who is always the guy fitting the description. This rhetorical life is brought to you by graduate students in the Composition and Cultural Rhetoric Program at Syracuse University. Executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Ben Kiebrick and Allison Hitt, with additional production and editing from Carrie Ann Soto, Tamar Isak, and Jana Rosinski. 